Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Tyler was on fire for the Lord, came to Christ early in college, quickly got involved with a group of believers who were excited about Jesus, and Tyler himself became quite excited about Jesus. He didn't come from a church background, so there was a lot he simply didn't know about the Bible, about just about anything that had to do with Christianity. So everything was brand new and therefore quite exciting to him to learn that God was a trinity, to learn that God was involved in his life, that God cared, that through Christ he was adopted into the family of God, everything was exciting. His prayers were very fresh and raw. Everything was rather new for Tyler and he was just learning the ropes. He was excited to tell other people about Jesus as well. He got in with some roommates who were Christians. This really helped him. Then those roommates got married, and he was left senior year of college without Christian roommates. Still had some Christians he knew, but many of them had graduated and moved on. He's taking an internship this final year of college, so he started to get rather busy. And one of his co-workers was part of a what he said was a local church, but it was one Tyler had never heard of before, so he was interested. Tell me about your church. Well, as he learned about the church, the Christians that this coworker associated with, he realized that what this coworker was involved in, it had all the same words, grace, Jesus, God, but the teachings were somewhat different. He couldn't quite put his finger on it at first. But a lot of the people involved in this church or this group were very friendly. So he went there on a Saturday night. They were having a service. He goes there. It's in a house. He's interacting with people. They're very friendly. Well, as time goes on, Tyler's still at his own church growing, but he's also attending this other service for this other local Christian group. And slowly over time begins to realize, wow, this group, their emphasis is a little bit different. There's not as much emphasis on knowing the Bible, knowing the words, understanding, exegeting, figuring out. They would consider that to be sort of a dead type of religion, just academic. Instead, it's on experiences of the Holy Spirit. And there's something about this to Tyler that seems appealing. He says, maybe this is what I've been missing. Everything seemed a little tough. Fighting my sin and growing has seemed kind of commonplace and difficult. But these people seem to have something very exciting. As he gets connected, he's learning. He's learning from them, and he's excited about what he's learning. However, as he gets deeper into this group, he realizes that they don't emphasize certain things that his church does. For example, several of the people in this group sleep with people outside of marriage. And when Tyler was shocked to hear this and confronted them about it, their response to him was, listen, God's redeeming our bodies we're spiritual, we've been enlightened, and the body is not that important right now. This isn't a sin, this is just an expression of love that we have as a local community. It's a part of our Christian fellowship. Tyler's a newer believer, he's not sure what to think about this. Certainly there's something fleshly in a sinful way that attracts Tyler to this kind of community and this kind of teaching. Here he has been in college fighting every day against sin and temptation. And here is a group, 
using all the same words, but they're saying you don't have to fight miserably every day against it. You can embrace it and still be a Christian. So here Tyler is, sort of stuck between these groups, not sure which way to go and not sure to, how to figure out which of these groups is true. What does God really want from my life? Our question is, is there hope for Tyler? Now, we'll return to Tyler momentarily. The argument we're making in this class is there's hope for Tyler and anyone in a circumstance like his. And the reason there's hope is because of who God is. Not as we imagine him to be, but as he's revealed himself to be in the Bible. So we're going to, like we do every class, begin by considering who God is. In this case, God is holy. What does it mean that God is holy? We'll come back at the end and apply that to our holiness and to Tyler's as well. So let's get into this. We're going to start with an attempt at a definition of holiness. This is a word I imagine you know. Certainly you know that God is holy, but a good exercise would be even in your mind right now, if someone put you on the spot and said, what does it mean that God is holy? Could you answer them? Have you thought about it? <laughs> Some of you probably could, others maybe not. It's one of those things we're so familiar with. It's helpful for us to pause and define it. What do we mean when we say that God is holy? I'm going to begin with a definition I'm drawing from one of the best books written in the last hundred years, maybe of all time, on the holiness of God. It's simply called The Holiness of God. Many of you have read it. It's by the late R.C. Sproul. This is a book that's really defined a generation of Christians like me. Interestingly, if you've read that book, it is not until the third chapter that he even defines what the holiness of God is. And he acknowledges that when he gets, starts the third chapter, he writes, here we are already in the third chapter of this book and I've still not defined what it means to be holy. <laughs> and he says, I wish I could postpone this task even further. So as you can tell, there's gonna be a challenge here in defining this. But then he says this, when the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is, here's the phrase, it's two words, a little challenging two words, but here they are. It means God is transcendentally, <laughs> R.C. Sproul is allowed to use words like that, transcendentally separate, transcendentally separate. Just simplify that first word and think, do you know the word transcend? To transcend something is to go above it. That's all that he's saying here. That God is above us in a way that means he's separate from us. So if you want to think of it in terms of space, if that helps. When we say God's holy, we mean he's up over there. And we'll define what that means, but that's a simpler way to think of it. If you want the phrase, it's he's transcendently separate. He's so far, Sproul says, above and beyond us that he seems totally foreign to us. To be holy is to be other, to be different in a special way. Now, Sproul said that's the primary definition. There's a lot more that holiness entails. If you want to know a little bit more that it entails, and we'll come back to Sproul's definition, let me give you Grudem. I give you Grudem's definition almost every week because it's really helpful. 
What Grudem does is he doesn't emphasize that point. He talks about it later, transcendentally separate. But he focuses here on, quote, God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. So probably the best we can do as a simple definition is to think of God's holiness, meaning mainly, so put it at the top, mainly it means that God is so other than us. And the other you should think of as, not like below us, think of it as way above us. He is so above us, he is so other, it's amazing. And then you can put under that, well, in what way is he other than us? One of the main ways with holiness is that he's separated from sin, which we're not, we're trying to be, we're not there yet. He's so separated, he's up above it. He's separated from sin, and he's devoted to the one main right task in the world, which is to seek his own honor. So I get it, that's a little complex, but if a scholar like R.C. Sproul delays it to the third chapter, <laughs> I don't know what we're going to do. So that's the best we can do there, is that God's holiness, he is above beyond us in a magnificent way and one of the main ways he is is that he's so separate from all that's creaturely and sinful and he is devoted to himself in a perfect way so there you go <laughs> now the reason I can't just um, simplify that further although I'd love to just give you a simple line easier than that is because when we encounter the concept of holiness in the Bible itself it contains all of those ideas so if we were to simplify it further, just say, well, he's just separated from sin, it wouldn't make sense of passages where that's not even in view, it's just his transcendence, and vice versa. So you're going to have to try your best to keep all of those things in your mind. And don't worry if you don't memorize this definition or it's confusing to you. If you just keep reading your Bible, you will just keep getting this flavor. I mean, you will, almost like when you're working a specific job, at some point, the terminology and the tasks become like muscle memory. You just become so familiar with them. As you're reading your Bible, these attributes become really familiar to you. Even if you can't stop and define it exactly. So just keep reading your Bible. But we will try to define it today a little more. I like to start after I've given a definition with at least one text that just demonstrates pretty clearly that this is an attribute of God and we're not making it up. Let me give you one of the first important texts in the Bible where God's holiness is mentioned. This is in the Song of Moses, which is in Exodus chapter 15. God has just powerfully delivered his people out of Egypt, opened the waters, took them through, and Moses sings this in verse 11. Who is like you? Separate? Separateness? Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? It's just a note there. Not just holy, but majestic. We could say transcendent. Maje your other, who's like you? Not even the false gods. Who's like you? You're separate, and you're majestic in holiness. You're up over there. Awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonder which he did for his own glory because he's committed to himself. So you kind of can see echoes of the whole definition even in that verse. 
All right, now let's try a further explanation of God's holiness using the scriptures here. As a reminder, Sproul said, of course, that it means to be transcendently separate. Let's start with that separate piece, and we'll come to transcend it in a second. The idea of separateness in holiness. Now, when you think of holiness, if you know your Bible well, you may immediately go to the Old Testament where there were objects and locations that were called holy. God is not the only one in the Bible who is defined with the attribute of holiness. The main place on earth that was considered holy in the Old Testament, what was it? Anyone know? Holy of Holies, which was the middle, the centerpiece here of the tabernacle and then the temple. So here's the tabernacle, later becomes the temple. The Holy of Holies is the inner room. If you go out from the Holy of Holies, which was just a Hebrew way of saying the most holy. So this was the most holy place in a ritual sense on earth, right here. And you go out from there and you come into the holy place. And that's where the showbread and the candlestick and so forth. It's in the building in the temple, but it's not in the holiest place yet. That just has the Ark of the Covenant. That's it. So you have the holiest place, the holy place. Then you have the temple grounds. They're also holy. The priests who serve on the temple grounds, they have to be sanctified, made holy by ritual cleansings and so forth. They even have on their turban a golden plate. And you know what it says on the golden plate for the high priest? Holy to the Lord. It's inscribed. You can't miss it. It's literally on their forehead. So if you see a priest, you can't help but think holy in a ritual or ceremonial sense. So they're holy. And then you have Jerusalem where the temple's located. That's the holy city. And then you go out. And the Gentiles who are located far away from Jerusalem in the Old Testament, they're unholy and unclean, both morally but also because they're far away. So in the Old Testament, God often gives us a picture of something in a physical way to help us understand it when it's fulfilled in the new. So what you see in the Old Testament is that things are holy and places are holy the closer they're connected to God himself. The reason the holiest place, the most holy place was holy is because that's where God most clearly manifested his presence on earth. He said he would sit above the mercy seat that was there on top of the Ark of the Covenant where you had two golden cherubim and God would be there. God's everywhere, we know. But he manifests or makes clear his presence specially and uniquely in that place. And so emanating out from there, the closer you get to where God is, then there is this ritual holiness. Now we saw this even before there was a temple. Because if you remember, Moses, when he first encountered that burning bush where God was manifesting his presence, he turns aside. Why is this bush burning but not consumed? Turns out the Lord was there. And what does the Lord tell Moses he has to do when he approaches the bush? Take off your sandals because the ground on which you're standing is holy ground. Why is this ground holier than that ground over there? I can wear my sandals over there. Why can't I wear my sandals in front of the bush? Again, because God is revealing himself in the bush. So the clearest thing we see in the Old Testament ceremony 
And this would apply really to all the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, including diet and everything. So God was making it very clear, I am holy. And because I'm taking you as a people to myself, I'm connecting you to myself. Therefore, because we have that proximity, you have to be holy. And one way he made that clear was just geographical location. Holiest place, and then going out, things are holy, but there's even degrees of holiness of the things. <laughs> it's the holiest place, the holy place, the temple grounds, and so forth. So if you lived in Old Testament times, and for us who read about them, we're supposed to come away with a sense that if we don't know anything else, we should know that the Holy One of Israel is holy. <laughs> so holy that if you get close, it sanctifies. Or if you're not sanctified, you die. So there is a, an immense holiness about God. And you see that in Old Testament ceremony. Now like Sproul and Grudem both point out, this idea of holiness, people debate exactly what it means, but I do think the idea of separateness is a key piece of it. Separateness. This is why even when you look at Old Testament ceremony and things that had to do with the tabernacle, for example, the incense that was mixed to burn inside the holy place to fill the holiest place, in the Old Testament, you were not allowed to make that same mixture of incense. If you did, you were cut off from the people of Israel. So you mix, the, I forget what it is, frankincense and something. You mix that same combination, the same ratio, you're cut off. Why are you cut off from mixing a ratio of incense? Because the idea was that specific blend of incense was set apart. It was holy, meaning it was set apart from common use. It's not sinful at that time. It wasn't some new age thing. It was not sinful to have incense to make things smell fine. That's fine. But this specific blend had been set apart. That's what it meant that it was holy. It was set apart for what? For God. It was set apart for use for God. So it is set apart from common use unto holy use, unto God himself, to be used for him. So this idea of separateness means set apart from. Now even here, in your mind, you kind of have to be aware that holiness means set apart from two things that are related but different. Number one, holiness, and this is how we usually use the term, and it's true. Holiness means set apart from moral wrong, or what we would say, sin. To be holy is to be set apart from sin. Here's sin over here. Here's you over here. Holy. That's the idea. Here's an example in the Old Testament. Speaking of God, Habakkuk 1.13 speaks of God as you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Now God sees the evil that's done in the world or he wouldn't be the judge of all the earth. But Habakkuk's point, Habakkuk's point was you are so holy, you are so set apart in your being from all that is sinful. Like James says, you can't be tempted, you don't do wrong. You're so set apart that he's using a picture. You, it's like you don't even look upon it. You're 
far away over here. It's like what Cicero had said of Roman citizens. He said it's beneath the dignity of a Roman citizen even to allow the thought of crucifixion to enter their mind. You're so set apart from it, you shouldn't even think about it. And similarly here with God, he's so set apart from what is sinful that it's like he's not even looking upon it. His eyes are so pure, he doesn't even look upon it. So for God to be holy means he's set apart from sin. But holiness has another aspect. It also means that God is set apart from what is not necessarily sin, but what we will just call creaturely or common. You saw that with the incense. It's not necessarily sinful to blend that kind of incense. It was just that that incense was set apart from common use for holy use. So holiness also has the idea of being set apart from common creatureliness. This is really what we saw in Exodus 3 when Moses approached that burning bush and God said, take off your sandals. Some cultures you do still take your shoes off some Asian culture, you'll take your shoes off if you're going into someone's house. I think part of that's cleanliness. I don't know all the spiritual significance of that. Maybe some of you do in certain cultures. But the idea here is it's your sandals that connect you to the earth. You get that? You get dirt on your sandals. It's kind of like in the New Testament. Jesus said to the apostles, if you enter a city and they reject you, then what are you to do? Get the, get the dirt off your sandals and out of your cloak. Leave it. Leave that earth with them. The idea is dirt sticks to your sandals and to your feet, so you need to remove your sandals. That is the part of you that connects you, that makes you creaturely and earthly. And if you're in a holy place, Moses, then remove those sandals from you. Don't bring what is common or creaturely. Now, dirt is not sinful. It's just dirt. We're made out of it. It's not sinful, but it's so creaturely. It's so earthly. We're made out of dirt. God is not. Therefore, he removes his sandals. We're going to talk about another remarkable picture of this in just a second. Because trying to emphasize how set apart God is from creatureliness, in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah has a vision in the year Uzziah died of God in his holiness sitting upon his throne and the angels are crying out, holy, 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 you may remember that those magnificent angelic beings had six wings, not two. They had six. They were using two of them to fly. But do you know what they were doing with the other four? They were covering their face before God and they were covering their feet. Why do these majestic angelic beings in the presence of God have to cover their feet. <laughs> they don't even walk on our earth, but it's that same imagery. That is any sense of creatureliness. If we're not, we can't see God and God is so holy, even our creatureliness we have to conceal when we're in his presence. So for God to be holy, he's up, he's over there, transcendent. He is so far away from our sin this is why when you struggle with thoughts about God perhaps doing something wicked, this is when God allows or brings about something very painful in your life and you're dealing with, how could God do this? And the doubts come in and the thoughts come in, maybe God is just monstrous. You know, maybe God did this without compassion. Maybe he's not wise, whatever. It was some wrong in God. The doctrine of God's holiness is meant to make very clear 
that you're wrong. <laughs> I understand we struggle, you know, but you're, you're wrong about that. God is so far removed from sin. At the same time in his holiness, he's so far removed, even from what's not necessarily sin, but it's just creatureliness. It's also something we will struggle with when difficulty comes in our life. And we try to imagine God as if he were just one of us, but a really nice one of us and a really smart, strong one of us. And we just project that up into the sky and we think that's God. God's point to you, and we saw it at the end of Job when he speaks from the whirlwind, is you thought I was altogether like yourself. You thought I was just a person times infinity or something. He says, no, I'm so far removed even from creatureliness. I am other. You can see this then God being separated from, but just like when people are holy or things are holy, it's a separation from and a separation unto. And in God's case, you say, okay, separated from sin and creatureliness, but what is he separated unto? Because we are holy to the Lord, holy to the Lord. What is he holy or separated unto? It's the same. He is separated unto himself. That means, as Grudem had said, he is fully committed to seeking his own honor. For us, that'd be wrong because we're not God, but for him, it is right. And it is a part of his holiness. Listen to this in Isaiah 42. He says, I'm the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. When you live your life in such a way that you don't give God's glory to others, you don't bow down to idols of the heart, then you are holy. When God conducts himself in such a way that he, like he says, gives no glory to any other, he's holy. Separated from sin and creatureliness, separated unto himself. So there is half of Sproul's definition, transcendentally separate. So God is separate. Now let's deal with that word that has so many letters. <laughs> if you're sitting there trying to spell it, I don't blame you. I don't know that I could spell it either. Transcendentally separate. What does it mean that God is not just separate, but he's transcendentally separate? For this, if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it to Isaiah chapter 6. If there is one passage in the Bible that speaks most directly to God's holiness, it is the beginning of Isaiah chapter 6. And the picture of God's holiness here is not as much focused on God's separateness apart from, for example, sin, although we have that, it is brought in when Isaiah speaks later. But the emphasis here first is on God's transcendence. Let me show you that. Beginning in the first verse. In the year that King Uzziah died, by the way, King Uzziah had reigned for about 50 years. So this was a long time. So when you have a king, especially in that context, reign 50 years and then die, it's a time of political uncertainty. Oftentimes, foreign kings will attack once your king dies because 
there's not as much certainty, confidence. So it's an uncertain time. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Uzziah is not on a throne, he's dead. But the Lord is still on a throne. But notice his, his throne is high, transcendent, and lifted up. And the train of his robe, that's the back of his robe coming down from his back, it filled the whole temple. It's massive. So there he is on his throne and he says, above him stood the seraphim, angelic beings. It means burning ones, but these are angelic beings. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one seraph called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy. You probably are aware that when this was written in Hebrew, you can't control I for italics or control B, you know, for bold print or anything like that. You don't, you don't have those options. So if you want to emphasize something, you just repeat it. It's the easiest way to do it. Jesus said this in the New Testament, truly, truly, I say to you. Why truly, why not just truly, I say to you? <laughs> truly, truly, I say to you. You know, bold that, italicized in modern books. Here, though, you don't have it repeated twice. You have it repeated another time, thrice, three times. Holy, holy, holy. So now it's bold and italicized and underlined. Holy. So I don't know. You can't make the point more clearly. These, are, these seraphim are crying this out. It is the only attribute of God that is listed with a threefold repetition like this. Holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. It says, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. The whole image here is supposed to convey to you, this is really easy for us to read here in this room. It's very comfortable. The seats are padded, AC. This is all nice, you know. But if you're actually here, <laughs> having this vision, this is like, I don't know, think of some movie or something where there's some massive creature coming and everything's shaking, everything's being obliterated. That's what's happening here. It's massive. Smoke is filling the room. These are all things that for you and me, if smoke starts filling the room, then we all leave the room because <laughs> it's not a good thing. It's just like Mount Sinai, it is supposed to be a clear picture of the transcendent power of God. He's not to be trifled with. And that's what Isaiah is seeing here. So then here's Isaiah's response. And I said, woe is me. <laughs> Probably not that calmly, but that's what he said. For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Why would Isaiah respond to this picture of God's holiness like that? Well, because he knows that God's holiness isn't just he's so transcendently awesome, but that he's separate from sin. And here's Isaiah. There's sin everywhere. And he looks around him at all of Israel. Everybody's got sin everywhere. 
And part of God's holiness is not just that he's transcendently amazing, but part of it being amazing is that he's so far removed from sin. So that's what terrifies Isaiah. Woe is me. This place is shaking and God should any second just bring his thumb down and end of Isaiah. Really, end of the whole nation if he wants. That's his response to God's holiness. Now it's interesting, Wayne Groom and his systematic theology, if you read that, he divides up God's attributes in different ways. He talks about some attributes that are summary attributes. These kind of summarize all the other attributes in some way. God's goodness or whatever it is that he puts in there. God's a trinity, etc. And then he has moral attributes, his mercy, and so forth. And he takes holiness and he has it listed under God's moral attributes. And that is fair. I'm not criticizing. Don't tell him. I'm not criticizing him. He's a smart man. But it does seem to me, given this threefold repetition and just the concept of holiness itself, that the holiness of God is more like a summary attribute of God. His love is, all of God's attributes define all the other ones. You may know that. But this one especially, his love is a holy love. It's not the kind of I was going to say positive encouraging. I'm not criticizing any radio stations or anything. Listen to your radio stations. But it's not just a love that is just positive all, this, all the time, warm and fuzzy type of a thing. God's love was most clearly expressed in three hours of darkness with blood and gore. You know, it was on the cross. And that's because it was a holy love. It's not some simple throwaway Valentine card from some kid in your class, you know, like, hey, thanks, you know, it's, that's wonderful. But it's not that kind of love. God's love is a holy love. There is a weight to it. It is that king sitting on the throne transcendently, him expressing love. In fact, that is what we find in this very scene because Isaiah is worried he's going to be crushed by this transcendent being and just the opposite. Because God is holy in his love and his mercy, he sends a seraph down with a burning coal, touches his lips and says, your sin is taken away. In fact, after that he says, I'm going to make you my servant. How is that possible? It's because of the weight, the holiness even of his love. There is a holiness to the wrath of God. That's why it may trouble us at times to think of the wrath of God, which we'll consider in a later class. But we need to remind ourselves that the wrath of God, like all of his attributes, there is a holiness. You can't fix it. You can't go in with your screwdriver and tinker it and make it better. There is a weight to it that's right and holy. It's set apart from any of our wrong thinking. It's exactly the way that it ought to be, and that's true of all. So I think we could think of God's holiness in some ways as a summary attribute. He is a holy God. I do just want to point this out before we move on to application, with a kind of application, I guess, and that is the holiness of God is one of the attributes most lost today. It is most lost today. There are other attributes of God that are still, and maybe wrath gets a close second or something, but the idea that God is transcendent and other, this picture of God in Isaiah 6, it is simply not the idea of God that most people carry in their heads. Either you separate out Old Testament God, he's different and scary. We got Jesus, New Testament, he's nice. Or I don't know how, how you handle an Isaiah 6, but it's simply not the way 
that we collectively today tend to think about God. So I do want to emphasize this. The reason it's so significant is if you don't have a view of God that takes into account his immense holiness, then the gospel that we want to emphasize, like, let's not talk about scary God. Let's talk about the gospel. It's love and it's, it means nothing. It doesn't mean anything. It becomes really cheap. And it's part of the reason that you have people who are hearing about God's love all the time, but, but can just live their whole, I'm not trying to be overly critical, but you could just live your whole life, go to church, hear about God's love. And it means almost nothing. I mean, it's kind of encouraging, especially if something hard's going on. It doesn't really change your life. It doesn't really infect, affect you that significantly. It's just kind of a cultural thing that's a part of your life, kind of partitioned out to Sunday mornings or whatever. That is a complete misunderstanding of the gospel. <laughs> the gospel, which we'll spend three months focused on next quarter, the gospel is a rich, immense thing. It is enough to die for, and you will be losing nothing if you do. It is not a part of life. It is life. But you don't have that sense, Jesus dying on the cross, doesn't give you that sense unless you know God as a holy God. Because the gospel is saving you not from an uncomfortable life. It's actually probably plunging you into an uncomfortable life. The gospel is saving you from the wrath of a holy God. And if your God's not a holy God, then it doesn't really matter much to be saved from the wrath of a holy God. <laughs> the, what does the gospel mean? You'll think it means health, wealth, prosperity, or it'll mean just general encouragement in the face of life's difficulties, and it will be something you're not that interested in. So I can't emphasize enough, as a kind of side note, here at Faith Bible Church, it's one of the reasons we harp on this, but a high view of God the holiness of God, his immensity. It's not because we want to be mean and be scared. It's totally the opposite. It's because if you grasp the holiness of God, then the gospel becomes a beautiful song. Something you love and live for and die for. All right, let's move now to the final part of this class and just briefly make one other application of God's holiness. I said the class is God's holiness, your holiness. What does this discussion have to do with you separating from sin and living your life consecrated to God? Let me just give you one passage. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. You will see him quote from Leviticus 11:44, drawing from the Old Testament. But here's how he applies it, 1 Peter 1, 14 on. He says, As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also, that's the key word, also, be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for, because, why? Because I am holy. One of the primary reasons for any of us to live a holy life, when you go this week and you are tempted by sin, and you will be, and you all have different sins you're tempted by, and you will be this week, why are you going to say no to that sin? It's going to be pleasurable, enjoyable, if it's pride, if it's other kinds of temptation, it's going to lure you in. How are you going to resist it? One of the main ways you resist it is by remembering the holiness of God. That's why we are a holy people. We're not better than thou looking down my nose at you. 
we're humbled by the transcendent magnificence of God and we don't take him lightly. We feel honored that we've been called to worship a God who's a holy God. This is, as you may remember here in closing, Plato, the Greek philosopher so long ago, before the time of Jesus, he lamented that his gods, the Greek gods, were so unholy. And Plato was trying to convince young people to live good lives and he said, I don't know how to do it with these gods. <laughs> he said, the best I can do is just say those are kind of myths and there must be a perfect God. That was Plato. And he was right. You and I serve the perfect God, the unknown God to him. It's our God. And because he's our example, therefore we live holy lives. Return to Tyler. Tyler's still stuck here in between these two, this group where there's love and People are interested in him, but there's not a sense of holiness. And then his Sunday morning church, which does not seem as exciting, to be honest, but people are fighting against sin. He could go either way. But one day he's reading Isaiah chapter 6, and he sees in Isaiah 6 both this picture of God's transcendence, and he also sees Isaiah calling out, I am a person of unclean lips. That's just like the group he's visiting. They're an unclean group, but they celebrate it. And he looks at Isaiah. Isaiah does not celebrate it. Isaiah is terrified. And to be honest, Tyler himself, in considering the propositions of this group, has felt a sort of terror that he's suppressed in his own soul of this feels offensive to God. Thankfully, the church he goes to on Sunday, although not always as interesting, is presenting a true view of God. And week after week, Tyler has been seeing that. Here is everything this other group presents that his flesh would love. And here is a high view of God. And by God's grace, it is this true picture of God that wins out. Tyler can't live in the middle anymore. He actually feels a godly sort of fear about it. He cuts off and stops attending this other group. They, of course, all think he's a legalist. They use those terms with him. That he's a hyper-legalist, over-holiness, greater than thou, whatever you want to name it. But none of that really affects Tyler because he has had a picture, an image of this holy God in Isaiah 6. And he is not turning aside to the things that God dislikes. His God is holy, therefore Tyler is committed to being holy. There is hope for Tyler. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you are just the God that you are and not any other. And we do in our souls crave you more than we long for bread itself, more than we hunger for lunch today, more than we hunger for promotions, more than we desire for our families to be precisely what we want them to be, with nice, neat, obedient children and a loving spouse, more than if we're single, we long for a spouse, more than we crave a particular future, certain goals we've set for ourselves to change the world, more than we want fame or honor or prestige, more than any of that, Lord, we long as you've made us to long after you yourself. You are a holy God. You are not small but massive and you are certainly sufficient to fully satisfy the souls that you've created in us, these spirits that you jealously long for. So I pray you would help us to open ourselves up to you, 
to be distracted away from sin and simple worldliness, and instead to be completely devoted to you yourself, to your holy name, and to your honor. Lord, it might seem impossible to live these kinds of lives, and it would be if it were not for the mighty arm of the holy God upholding and uplifting us. And I pray that you would, that you would make our lives otherworldly, that you would lift us up from the world and grant us a sight of heaven in our souls by faith to see you seated still upon your throne. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.